0: Good morning. My name is David, and I am an assisting priest here at Incarnation, and it's a pleasure to worship with you all this morning. I was wondering if you could help me with a little brainstorming session as we get started. We often speak of different kinds of prayer, um, be they kinds we find in the Bible, or maybe other kinds that we may, you know, practice today. Um, what are some different kinds of prayer that you can think of off the top of your heads? Let's, let's try to categorize here. Thanksgiving. Good. Where we thank God for what he's done. Asking for things. Asking for things. Petitions. Yes. Intercession. Intercession. So, uh, praying on behalf of another. Silence. Ooh. Silence. I'll leave that one in mystery. Do you no. <laughs> Confession. Confession. Yes. Where we confess our sins to God and ask forgiveness. The Jesus Prayer. Do you want to share that one with us? Yes, this is one prayed by, um, well, it can be prayed by anybody, but it is especially prominent among Eastern Orthodox Christians, The Jesus Prayer. Wonderful novel by J.D. Salinger, Franny, and Zoe, in which that prayer plays a prominent role. But, okay, I'll, I'll end my commercial for that book. <laughs> Ooh, Yes. Yes, we have a whole prayer book in the Bible that is a bunch of songs, which is the Psalms. Yes. Healing prayer. Healing prayer, indeed. That one needs no explanation. Imprecatory. (laughs) Thank you, Grant. Cursing. (laughs) Or imprecatory, if you want no one to know what you're talking about. thank you and let's say last but not least what we read today um, in the gospel reading the lord's prayer would be another specific one that we are called upon to pray well today i want to zero in on a certain kind of let's say intercessory prayer Um, we're going to look at one of several passages in scripture where someone negotiates with god to get him to change course specifically The Lord has told Abraham that he must destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on account of the great evil being done there. Abraham tries to talk God out of it and succeeds in getting God to accept certain conditions. These are conditions that could, in principle, spare the cities. Now we could call this any number of things, Um, we could say that this is a negotiation in prayer. You could say it's a bargain with God or a deal one makes with God. And sometimes I think it's perfectly appropriate to say that. um, But perhaps the most precise term we could use for this kind of prayer is advocacy. To put it more vividly, this is where you are standing or where Abraham is standing in between God and someone else and trying to plead their case. I'm interested in what this negotiation tells us about what God is like and in how Abraham can be so bold as to address God this way. And lastly, I think we can and should pray the way that Abraham does here. All right, to review, the Lord says to Abraham, well, no, sorry, the Lord says either to himself or to the other visitors. You remember the reading last week that Amy preached upon where Abraham is visited by the Lord, which is also being visited by three men, um, and it doesn't really untie that knot as to how that exactly works, but Christians will, of course, go right to the Trinity. In any case, whether God's talking to these other people um, or himself, it's kind of the same thing. (laughs) Anyway, he says... How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin! I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And I won't read through the entire thing, but God agrees with Abraham. He says, you know what, Abraham? You're right. That would be unjust. I won't do it. If he didn't agree, God presumably would do the more just thing. So I think it's safe to say God's on the same page as Abraham. So then Abraham talks God down even further. You know, Well, okay, I mean, if there are five short of 50, surely you wouldn't destroy it for lack of those five, um, which is a nice little negotiating strategy, by the way, um, because we're talking about, like, all right, well, what if 99.1% are unrighteous? <laughs> you know, so, he, uh, so if you look at it in absolute numbers, Um, this is an even bigger deal that God's agreeing to it. So God says, okay, 45, I won't do it. And then they go down to 30, 20, and finally 10. And God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. We don't know exactly why. That's where they stop. We don't know if it was Abraham had lost his nerve and thought he would better, you know, not push his luck. We don't know if this is because that is all God would agree to, Um, but that's where the negotiation ends. In any case, not a bad deal that Abraham gets. First, I want to consider the way that this type of bargaining with God differs from how we pray in other ways. Um, For one thing, Abraham is not just making a pious request or simply expressing to God his desired outcome. Um, I call these suggestion box prayers. This is, the, the logic of this prayer is something like, God, I would really like for this thing to happen, but if it's not your will, then I'll accept that. That's okay. But it sure would be nice. So that's a suggestion box prayer. It's also not a generic prayer for God's will to be done. I think this posture comes from a noble desire not to pick an outcome that God doesn't want. Um, and we want to be humble so as not to presume upon God's will. And sometimes especially when we are wrestling against our own pride, this kind of prayer is entirely appropriate because perhaps we are very much pushing against God's will. Uh, But I also think sometimes this way to pray can be a shield against disappointment. We keep our expectations of God very low. And while it's great to affirm the goodness of God's plan and his will, this type of prayer does strike me as particularly, or I'm sorry, this prayer does not strike me as particularly useful if what we're really after is to ask God for something. Abraham's pleading with the Lord does not strike me as a lament either. I think this one we omitted from our little brainstorming session. Um, this is where the heart cries out to God and you know it may be a place Um, a spiritual posture in which we express sorrow or anger, confusion or grief. And I think it is a very positive development in churches today that we are increasingly making space for this type of prayer to allow ourselves to bring these things to the Lord. Perhaps you've heard of the term toxic positivity. It's an attempt to present a positive attitude that ends up invalidating the not-so-positive feelings or experiences of another. As a reaction to toxic positivity in prayer, rehabilitating lament has been a very healthy thing for the church. But for Abraham, lament is not enough. It's one thing for him to acknowledge this tragedy to God. It's one thing for him to feel deeply about this tragedy and to say so. Or even for him to express empathy for the suffering of others. But it is another thing entirely to stand up to God himself, to put it all out there, and to urgently try to steer his plan, by all appearances, in a different direction. The righteous people of Sodom and Gomorrah need someone who has God's ear to stand up for them. And as we'll see, not just the righteous. But how is it even possible for Abraham to speak to the Lord like this and live to tell about it, and what's more, to persuade him? In the first place, it's not as though Abraham has anything to offer God in exchange for mercy on these cities. The patriarch himself admits that he is but dust and ashes in verse 27. I don't think that what he's saying is that he is a great sinner and therefore unworthy to argue with God, although that would be true. I think what Abraham is getting at here is that humans are dust and ashes by nature, were made from the ground, in contrast with the majesty of God. We are mortal creatures, so sin aside, we would be unworthy, would be. Now we have to remember, Abraham probably does not know very much about this God who approached him out of nowhere and called him to be a great nation and to bless all the peoples of the earth. We have the Bible and thousands of years to study it, but he doesn't. Abraham understands at least one thing, though. The Lord excels over all. He is, according to this passage in Genesis 18.25, the judge of all the earth. On what basis then does Abraham cut a deal with God? Abraham appeals, above all, to who God is. In this case, Abraham points to God's character as just. Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked, shall the judge of all the earth do what is just. Abraham may not have anything to offer the Lord in exchange for the mercy he wants to see on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Lord does have something to offer. God must stay true to himself. And indeed, God agrees. He is persuaded that it would indeed be a grave injustice to wipe out this city with 50 righteous people in it. Or with 45 And so on, all the way down to 10. Notice also that Abraham is not just interceding for the so-called righteous people in the city. What he is asking for is God to forgive everyone, to spare the city as a whole, not just those 50. He could have, Abraham could just, just like, could you just get them out of there and then go ahead? Um, But that's not Abraham's ask. It's spare everybody. And again... God agrees to this all the way down to 10 righteous people. You'll find prayers that do this all over the Bible, um, though they might not be quite so dramatic. Um, Flip through the Bible's prayer book, the Psalms, for example, you'll find many prayers that ask God to act for the sake of your name. So in Psalm 51, the psalmist asks for God to blot out his offenses for the sake of your name, or the famous 23rd psalm. Where the psalmist thanks God for his protection for his name's sake. The psalmists are saying something to the effect of God, defend your honor against potential doubters or scoffers. In the closest parallel to this passage in Genesis, Moses in Exodus 32 argues that, um, he argues with God that if he should punish the people of Israel for worshiping the golden calf... Then the Egyptians would say that the Lord brought his people out of Egypt with evil intent. And God relents. In each case, the premise is the same. God, please hear me and act for your sake. Perhaps most importantly, Abraham's advocacy on behalf of the people of Sodom happens within the context of his relationship with the Lord. If we read the four verses that come right before what we've read this morning, we'll see it more clearly. This is Genesis 18, 16 through 19. So this is right after the banquet Abraham sets for his visitors. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth Shall be blessed in him. No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. These verses absolutely fascinate me. We catch a glimpse of God's own deliberations with himself. And who can't relate to what God is saying to himself right here? Man, should I tell him? Do I tell Abraham? He's not going to like this at all. Abraham's going to freak out. I just know it. (sighs) I better tell him. This vignette reminds us that the Lord didn't have to warn Abraham at all about what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, there was nothing stopping God from just going ahead and doing it. Abraham himself recognizes that he's going far beyond how a mortal should approach the Lord. And yet God chose to let him in on it anyway. You get the impression that God feels like he owes it to Abraham to give him a heads up. And that sounds as strange to me as it might to you. Perhaps it helps to remember that God put himself in this position. The Lord didn't have to bind himself to this man and his descendants. Yet he did. Now, God wants to honor that bond between them. So in a way, God gave Abraham this chance to advocate for Sodom. The terms they agreed to are fairly generous towards Abraham's position. That raises a most interesting and important question. Did Abraham's pleading have any effect on God's plan? And I think it depends on one's point of view. From a human perspective, which by and large is the only one we have, yes it did. Abraham doesn't have a Bible like we do. He does not have the full scoop on the Lord. All he knows is what he directly sees and hears from the Lord. He doesn't know enough theologically to ask what God knew and when he knew it. And frankly, although the rest of Scripture teaches that nothing comes to pass apart from his will, for us as well, the future remains wide open between now and the Lord's return. Of course, the irony here is that not even 10 righteous people were found in the city. Reading this passage on its own terms, it's probably trying to communicate this is just how bad things were there. And thus, the negotiations were successful only in one sense, um, that the moral bar was set really low, but the people there couldn't even meet that. And I would be remiss not to address the impression a lot of us might get it. Of God in reading Genesis 18 today um, though there is far more to say about that than there is time this morning but the most important considerations I think are as follows as I've mentioned a few times this is a really important principle that is easy to forget this is Genesis we're at the beginning of the story there's a lot more that happens between now and Revelation there's a lot that still needs to happen in the Old Testament itself in the Old Testament does nothing if not wrestle with the justice of God. So this isn't something that you can just say, oh, well, that's an Old Testament thing. We have the New Testament. Jesus corrected the record on this. The Old Testament itself wrestles with this kind of thing. Now, if we speak about the story's function elsewhere in Scripture, it mainly serves a rhetorical purpose, usually to show, in fact, every time I can think of, to show that the present generation Has more to repent of than Sodom did. So one of the most important passages on this is in the book of Ezekiel where the prophet invokes the memory of Sodom in a judgment against the nation of Judah. This is God's chosen people. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So the Bible consistently says, you know that story? The point there is not those people were bad. The point is you are not doing justice, and therefore you need to repent. It is a comparative relative point that the prophets make. And this includes Jesus himself. Jesus says to his disciples as they go from city to city, preaching the kingdom of God, whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet, for I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So one should approach this text in a position of humility. Um, When we read the Bible As people having all the answers, we can say, oh, wow, those wicked, wicked people, when the point is to hold up a mirror to us. And the point here is not what people, I think, typically think of as what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel lays it out. You know, they were arrogant. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were proud. And above all, we get a very lopsided view of God if we don't think of where the story is going now that we have the full picture. I would say the Lord in Genesis 18 um, is just one aspect. There is a mediator that is pointing towards a greater mediator. Abraham is standing in as a figure, as a forerunner, for what Jesus does. And though Abraham ultimately did not get to avert the judgment on Sodom, Jesus is fully on the same page as the Lord, and yet he is the advocate for us before the Father. This is in uh, 1 John chapter 2. Uh, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for us only, but for the whole world. Therefore, when we look at any part of the Bible, we want to make sure that we're looking at the full picture of who God is. And, of course, you don't get all of that from Genesis 18 itself. But we can, with justice, look at Abraham as pointing us to what Jesus does. So God takes it upon himself to advocate and mediate for others. In conclusion, I want to look at this as a recipe for our own boldness as we approach God in prayer. If something strikes you as not right, this is wrong with the world, or this is You know, this shouldn't be happening to that person. Um, Don't short circuit that immediately with, well, if it happened, it's God's will. That's God's will only in a sense of it's hidden from us. We don't understand what the plan is overall. What scripture tells us, you know, what we have that Abraham didn't, is all kinds of things that we know um, are against God's revealed will illness is bad. It is okay to stand and say, God, eradicate this disease, you know, eliminate the last cell of cancer in their body. Just, it's okay to pray that. Um, You don't have to be like, but, you know, we accept wherever this goes. No, we don't accept that. You don't have to. Jesus came to say, God doesn't accept it, and he heals people. And why God allows these things to happen, it is not ultimately ours to know. Not now, anyway. But in Jesus Christ, we see that God himself, will say, in the person of Jesus, will say, it doesn't have to be this way. And he invites us, I think, to join him in standing in that place and pray for others. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, which this lectionary nicely paired with the Genesis reading, it says thy kingdom come in Luke's version it leaves out thy will be done, which is useful for the point I want to make. (laughs) Thy kingdom come has a very concrete list of things that go with it, right? The demons are cast out. The sick are healed. The prisoners are liberated. The oppressed are lifted up. And as Luke loves to point out, the rich will become poor. Those who are fed will become hungry. There will be a great reversal. The point being, everything that's wrong will be set right. So as people who live now with an understanding of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and has initiated, you know, we have every reason to be bold, to stand with him. We thank him for forgiving our sins, only he can do that, and that's only the thing that he can advocate for. But for everything else, um, you know, the hurricane that may be approaching, you know the pandemic, we can say, "God, this is wrong. please stop it." Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for the richness of your word and for including these stories that even other people elsewhere in your word wrestle with. And we thank you that you don't just leave us to our own devices, but you help us see in your son, Jesus Christ, how you really are. And that apart from him, we can't truly understand you. God, I pray that you would so unite us to the mind of Christ, that we would see the suffering of others as you do, and know in the fullness of your revealed will that you do not want that. Give us boldness to pray as you taught us to pray, and that we may pray that your kingdom come in its fullness in all respects. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.